Hello, and welcome to The Roundtable, a Next Generation Politics podcast. Next Generation is a cross-partisan nonprofit building a movement of young people committed to building bridges across various divides. I'm Ria Mehta, and this week, Sarah Cho, Inika Kodistane, Juliana Davis, and I spoke with the Brennan Center for Justice's Alicia Bannon, Managing Director for the Democracy Program and Leader of the Fair Courts team, and Jaina Adelstein, Research and Program Associate with the Fair Courts team, exploring what's most important for young people to understand about the courts today. Judicial decisions influence so much in our society, but the courts are often a black box to us. We discussed issues of diversity, the consequences of not having a diverse judiciary, and what it would be really like to create diversity on a broad level. Thank you for joining us. Hi, my name is Inika Kodistane, and I'm a sophomore from New Jersey. I'm especially interested in journalism, the media, and how we can achieve more nonpartisan news sources, especially in today's day and age. Hi, I'm Juliana. I'm a high school student in a senior in Manhattan, and I'm really interested in how we can get people my age more interested in the process of voting. And like, I think it's interesting because today we're talking about like Supreme Court judges at like a state level. So I think talking about how we can like up civic engagement for my age group or my generation. Hi, I'm Ria Mehta. I'm a senior in high school in central New Jersey, and I'm passionate uh, about bipartisanship and about civic engagement. Hi, my name is Sarah. I'm a high school senior here in Manhattan, and I'm really interested on topics about immigration and our current state of hyperpartisanship. Hi, I'm Alicia Bannon. I'm the managing director of the Democracy Program at the Brennan Center for Justice. The Brennan Center is a law and policy institute. We work to strengthen our systems of democracy and justice. And within that work, I lead our fair courts team where we work to promote fair, impartial, and diverse courts. And I'm Janet Edelstein. I work with Alicia at the Brennan Center on the Fair Courts team um, as a research and program associate doing um, research and advocacy to promote a fair, impartial, and diverse judiciary. I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit more on the work that you do and kind of in your opinion, what makes a fair judicial system? So within the Fair Courts team, we focus on a few different issues in terms of promoting a fair judiciary. So one of the things we look at is diversity on the bench. We also look at um, money and spending in judicial elections. We look at judicial recusal issues and attacks on the judiciary. I think one of the key parts of having a fair judicial system is promoting um, diversity of thoughts, but also demographic diversity on the bench. So looking at who sits on our benches and trying to make it so that they are more reflective of an increasingly diverse American population and also the legal profession at large. One of the key things that we work on is trying to mitigate the influence of outside spending in the judiciary and in judicial elections, which is kind of a more niche policy area. And I think trying to do away with those kinds of outside influences on judges who are supposed to be these impartial arbiters would be one of the the main things to promoting a more fair judiciary. You know, before coming to the Brennan Center, I worked as a litigator and I represented clients in death penalty cases and civil rights cases. And we were so dependent on 
a fair judiciary in order to have you know fair outcomes for our clients and we didn't always have that so i had clients where you know i would think that they would have a very strong case like i had a client who was facing the death penalty that had i thought a very strong case that he should be ineligible because he met sort of legal definitions that should mean that he's disqualified but i did not have confidence that the court was necessarily going to see it that way not and in part because of incentives and structures that sometimes pushed judges and pushed court systems to you know prioritize a judge's reelection and like sort of worrying that a particular you know siding with a criminal defendant for example might mean that they're going to face a nasty attack ad in their next election you know the incentives just to sort of move through overwhelming dockets of cases and not give every client and every person the attention that they deserve you know so it it really made me appreciate how important having the right structures in place are to make sure that people's rights are protected. Now versus like about a generation ago, the Supreme Courts are a lot less reflective of America's diversity and of like each state's diversity. And it's quite difficult for someone who's not a part of a POC narrative to understand. But why do you think specifically like they are less reflective now in terms of like there's a lot of other progressive movements going on. Why do you think like the Supreme Courts within states are a lot less diverse than they were like a generation ago? Well, I think one of the reasons why they're less diverse is because there's a lot of systems in place in terms of the way that we appoint or elect state Supreme Court judges that work against women and also people of color. So, for example, um, people of color tend to fare less well in state Supreme Court elections on average. And a lot of states use those. um, I think it's just under half of the states across the country use elections as a means of appointing their state Supreme Court judges. And so that's one of the reasons. And I think also there's a lot of barriers in terms of pipelines to the bench that people of color and women face when it comes to reaching state Supreme Court benches. And so I think those are two of the important reasons. Well, I, I just underscore, I think, the the pipeline issues. If you look at who you know, who who goes to law school and then coming out of law school, who moves on to leadership positions within um, within the law, who ends up being a law firm partner, who ends up being a law professor, you see kind of narrowing at every step of the way. And so I think what it really tells you is that, you know, kind of at every step coming out of, you know, high school into college into law school, we're not doing a good enough job of giving people the resources and support that they need to to thrive and and become leaders within their profession. And then that's kind of the necessary step you need in order to then even turn to consider to becoming a judge. So I think it's a big it's a big issue that really implicates a lot of aspects of our society and means that we need a lot of people to kind of come together to prioritize this as, a, as an issue. Is there a way to work around them? Like, what is the core of the issue? Is it that there's like a lack of education? Is it a lack of connections? Like, what would you say is a solution, a broad one, not necessarily have to be super intricate, but like, what is like the right direction to go in, in order to move past the pipeline? Well, I think one of the things that Alicia spoke about is increasing the amount of pipeline opportunities to law school and ultimately to the bench for people with marginalized identities. And I think that's one of the key parts of creating a more diverse judiciary and also increasing mentorship opportunities for people who have those identities. And then also another way, which I talked about briefly a little bit, is 
looking at the method of judicial selection and how that impacts diversity on the bench. So, like I said, people of color tend to fare less well in state Supreme Court elections than their white counterparts do. But also, there are other aspects to the process of reaching the bench that kind of hinder diversity. So, there are these bodies called judicial nominating commissions that recruit and evaluate and then ultimately recommend judicial candidates for appointment at the state level. And those um, nominating commissions are not necessarily diverse in and of themselves. So the people who sit on the nominating commissions tend to be overly white and male, but also they tend to not come from a huge diversity in terms of their professional background as well. And because of that, or um, maybe for other reasons as well, they don't always tend to focus on emphasizing diversity when it comes to selecting judicial candidates. So I think kind of reforming the way that judicial nominating commissions do their work as well would be a huge step in promoting diversity on the bench. Do you also think that having term limits, because I know for some judges, they've been serving like for a really, really long time. And that means that there's less of an opportunity for people who are in those positions, like people of color or women to like fill those spots. So do you think, do you think that those having term limits made shorter or like made in general would be helpful to diversifying the uh, bench? But also what do you, in your opinion, are the pros and cons of that? And do you think that that would be like possible to even be instituted on a state and federal level? I think you're right that especially if you look, for example, at the federal bench where judges have life tenure, they can be on the bench, you know, for 40 plus years. I think that that's definitely part of what one of the reasons why the judiciary is compared to other institutions is, you know, slower to change because you have people who are just you know, they have their seat for a really long time. I do think there's some trade-offs involved. So for example, um, you know, there's, there's reasons why we have judges on the bench for longer periods of time. And I should say states, almost every state has kind of shorter multiple terms for judges. So usually between six and 12 years, depending on the state, at least at the Supreme Court level. But you know, even that is a longer period of time than what you would have for other elected officials like a governor or, um, you know, state legislators. And, you know, there, there are good reasons for that. You know, you want judges, one, to have time to build expertise. You also want to give them some insulation from political pressures when they're making decisions. So, you know, I was talking about how in death penalty cases, right, very high salience cases, they can draw a lot of public attention. And there's actually a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of studies about this, how when a judge is about to stand for an election, they get harsher they they sentence more harshly they're more they're more likely to reverse and you know put put people to death even you know so they have these very extreme outcomes when they're worried about what's going to happen when you're sort of looking over your shoulder saying is my job at risk you know that can um that can interfere with them doing the job that they're supposed to do which is apply the law and be fair to everybody who's appearing before them so there are reasons why we have longer terms for judges. And so I think there's a trade-off there. Um, at the Brennan Center, we've, we've done some thinking about that issue and have called on states to adopt what we call a lengthy single term for judges. So something that's not, you're not going to be on the bench for your whole life. It's not like you're going to have somebody on the bench for, um, you know, 40 years, but we suggest a, a single term where you have a long enough time that you can develop expertise and be kind of insulated, but then not kind of stand periodically for re-election or re 
appointment so that you don't have to deal with these political pressures worrying about job security when you're making your decisions. I think one way that you could address that is by working hard to limit the influence of outside groups on judicial elections and often outside groups will be tied to corporations or perhaps like to specific policy measures and they can put pressure on judges, especially in elections to kind of pivot their decisions like Alicia was talking about in order to advance their own personal agenda. I had come across this a little bit before, but the Judicial Crisis Network, for example, being like a conservative group and being able to like fundraise for a lot of like, you know, judges who lean conservative. For groups like that, there's many more. Like, how do you guys approach reform? Because obviously they're like a private group and it's hard to like have, you know, reform to limit uh, the amount that like certain interests can donate at a broader level, like on the federal Supreme Court. So how do you guys approach, you know, like dealing with that issue? You know, you're, you're right, the, the US Supreme Court hasn't made our job very easy on this front. So a decade ago, they issued a ruling called Citizens United that basically opened the door to these kinds of expenditures by groups. So basically, you know, the, the idea is that if you're not donating money directly to a candidate, but rather just spending money directly on taking out advertisements, et cetera, you can just spend as much as you want. And this has really dramatically played out in the context of judicial elections, where we see, you know, in some states, millions of dollars being spent by outside groups on, on these um, state Supreme Court elections, oftentimes um, without any disclosure of who their donors are. So you mentioned the Judicial Crisis Network. That's one good example of a group where if you try to unpeel the onion and see, well, who's behind the Judicial Crisis Network? Ultimately, we don't know because we, they don't have to make public who the actual moneyed interests are that, are that are funding them and why they're funding them. So it leaves the public in the dark. It can obscure conflicts of interest for judges. So they might be hearing a case involving one of the donors and we don't even know about it. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a big issue. And then if you look at the, the, the ads they take out, often they're really misleading and kind of contribute to the politicization of the whole process. So it's, it's definitely a really problematic situation. And in, in large part, it comes from a kind of legal regime that the U.S. Supreme Court created. That being said, I think there's still a lot that you can do to mitigate some of those harms. And you know, a big one that I'd lift up would be this issue of secret money. So the U.S. Supreme Court has been really clear that there aren't any kind of constitutional prohibitions against better disclosure. So, you know, they're fine with saying, sure, let, let us make it public who's behind this money. And it's our legislators, it's Congress and state legislatures that have really lagged behind in in reforming our laws so that we can actually know who's behind all that spending. So I think that's one really important step that we can take. You know, another really important step would be to cut down on what we sometimes call coordination. Basically, if you're going to be spending money like this, the groups are supposed to be spending independently of the candidate. So you're not supposed to be essentially working for the candidate. The idea is that you're supposed to be just putting money in, in yourself as a group. But what we see, and this is in, um, in, in federal elections as well as in elections in states, is that oftentimes they're working really closely with the candidates, which makes it a lot easier for them to kind of elevate their message and you know essentially means it's like a backdoor way to just give a contribution to the candidate. So another step you could take would be to really bolster some of those laws to make sure that the groups aren't effectively working arm in arm with the candidates that they're supporting. I'm just curious like in general on a more I guess global or international scale 
for courts in other countries? Are they dealing with these kind of similar issues? What makes the U.S. court real system really unique or different in this way? Or is there anything we can learn from how court systems are working in other countries? I'd say one of the big differences between the U.S. and other countries is the prevalence of judicial elections. So 38 states use elections as part of their system for selecting their, their highest courts. Basically, the United States is virtually the only country in the world that uses those kinds of elections. And I do think there may be a, a lesson in that in terms of, you know, sort of thinking about moving away from a system of electing at least our Supreme Court justices and moving more to what we would call a publicly accountable appointment process. Can you explain to the listeners um, why we elect judges at a state level and why they're appointed at a federal level? It's a really fascinating history. So at the time the U.S. was founded, you know, with the, the 13 original, original colonies, all of our um, judges were appointed either by the governor or by state legislatures. And it was really only in the middle of the 19th century that states started moving to electing judges. And it was a reform measure. Um, in, in most part, um, states, people in states were worried that judges were too closely tied to the people who were appointing them. So in other words, that they weren't going to be sufficiently independent from the political branches, from the governors and the legislatures, and they weren't going to hold them accountable. And so moving to judicial elections was seen as a way of making judges accountable to the people. Um, the, the problem is that especially in modern times as these elections have become so politicized and have attracted all of this sort of big big money interests, you know, it's not clear that it's really working that way. Um, you know, if anything, I think often judges are feeling more accountable to their big donors rather than to the public or to, to justice as a whole. But really the motivation was, was judicial independence and wanting to make sure that judges had the space and the insulation to decide cases based on what they thought the law would require. Would you say that diversifying that nomination committee would also lead to diversifying the judiciary itself? Judicial nominating commissions are kind of, can be separate from the elections process because they select um, candidates that are then often brought to the governor and the governor selects from those candidates and ultimately appoints a judge based on that. And the, that judge doesn't go through an initial round of election, um, unlike some of the stuff we were talking about earlier. But I think that creating more diversity within the judicial nominating commissions would likely lead to more diverse um, ju judicial candidates and then ultimately more diverse benches because you would have people who um, could bring their lived experience to the selection process and then perhaps would probably think more closely about the importance of diversity, um, both in terms of demographic diversity, but also in terms of professional diversity. I'm wondering, is there anything that our listeners should really know about the judiciary system in the U.S.? Is something that they should keep in mind when they're thinking about how to stay informed, how to stay civically engaged? I think you're definitely right that most people don't think about the courts as part of their everyday life. But decisions that judges and, and courts make impact everything, every type of policy that people are passionate about, like from reproductive rights to things about mass incarceration to, to the environment. And so I think the decisions that judges make are really critical. And I think one thing to take away is that it's not just federal courts that are really important. And I think that a lot of the time when we're talking about the courts in the media, we're hearing about the Supreme Court or other federal judges, but state courts hear about 95% of all cases filed in the US. And so they make really critical decisions that shape our everyday lives. For young people, it's just about understanding the importance of state courts and also federal courts as well and trying to 
use that knowledge to pay close attention to who sits on the bench in their state and also at the federal level. Um, just thinking about if they potentially would want to go into a career in the judiciary because these kinds of careers start from a young age and it's the kind of thing that you can work for even as a young person in high school. Is there any pressure from politicians or like what are the like general opinions of people with like access to change issues like that? Opinions on them not having to follow a code of ethics? think it's completely outrageous. The U.S. Supreme Court justices are the only judges in the entire country that don't have to follow a code of ethics. And, you know, I think the Supreme Court should be the leader on ethics. They shouldn't be falling behind everybody else. Um, and I do think it's something that people are increasingly noticing. So, you know, there have been um, several bills that have been introduced in Congress over the past few years, including some bipartisan bills um, that have called for the adoption of a code of conduct for the U.S. Supreme Court. There's been some indication that it's something that the justices are also looking at themselves and that they're considering adopting um, adopting a code for themselves. And I, I think they should. And I think if they're if they're smart, they'll do it before Congress forces them to do it. And, you know, like I said, I think it's the right thing. The, the court should be a leader on ethics. So has there been like any more developments and like what would that ethics code look like? Like how specific would it be? How ambiguous would it be? As of now, the court hasn't acted on it. So, you know, and, and with all too many things, the U.S. Supreme Supreme Court really, in large part, acts behind closed doors, often without a lot of visibility until they might come out with a new policy pronouncement. So for right now, I don't think we have a great idea of exactly what it would look like. If you look at the codes that bind other judges, they tend to be written usually in fairly broad terms, but then with guidance that gets a little more specific. And, you know, I, I, I'd expect that what we might see coming for the Supreme Court would be something similar where there would be some general principles, but then maybe some more specific guidance about how you might handle issues that are particular to Supreme Court justices or might affect them in different ways, just given how prominent they are as public figures as compared to, to other judges. Would you say that because you're nominating a person of color does not mean that you're nominating someone who's necessarily different in how they will actually be a judge or would you say that they come hand in hand when we're discussing like diversity diversity in the judiciary i think that they're kind of naturally related to each other because being a person of color means you'll for the most part like have a different perspective and a difference in opinion and probably more diverse thought process from a white man and a black woman. Like I'm, I'm sure that they've had different lived experiences which have altered their perspectives like socially and politically, which is why I think that the two are important, but I think you can have the, the two of them together when you diversify based on demographics. You, I think naturally there'll be like a diversification of thought. Yeah, I would definitely agree. And I think in terms of the judiciary, having more diverse perspectives in terms of your demographics, like your race or your gender identity or anything like that, does create more um, opportunity to inform judicial deliberations and to inform judicial decision making. So there's one story that um, has really stuck with me, which is that in, about a decade ago when um, Justice um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was the only woman on the US Supreme Court, the court heard a case about a young girl um, who was strip searched for drugs after it was thought that she had snuck some prescription strength um, ibuprofen into her school. And 
um, Justice Ginsburg talked about how during oral arguments, her male colleagues didn't really understand the humiliation that this girl endured because they had never been a 13-year-old girl, which is what she said to them. And that perspective of having a woman ultimately kind of led the court to rule that the search was unconstitutional. And so I think that's just one example of how having like a range of demographic identities in terms of gender and in terms of race can really impact the way that judges specifically make decisions. But I do think it applies on a larger scale to different institutions. And so I think it's really important. That's all for today with Next Gen Politics. Special thanks to our editor, Clara Medina, our producer, Sanda Balaban, and to Jeremiah Hunt for our opening and closing music. Please check out our website at www.nextgenpolitics.org for links related to what we've discussed and to find out more about our work. And please recommend us to your civic-minded friends or to your friends you'd like to become more civic-minded. This is Maggie Yu for Next Gen Politics.